uh, I was having this conversation with him and I was, I was saying, oh, yes, it would be lovely to preach about it and talk about it. And then I realized, oh, of course, I had already planned that it was going to be part of our series. And, uh, and why did I plan that? I, I want to share with you the, the idea behind this season in the life of our church is that we understand discipleship as Christ understood it. We want to understand discipleship as Christ understood it. Because there's no point in me getting up here and preaching the gospel of Esteban or the gospel of Barry or the gospel of whomever. Because that gospel is flawed. It does not have substance. It does not have the, the truth for your life and for your moment and for what God is doing in you. Instead, instead, I want to preach the gospel of who? And I want for us to listen and follow Jesus and to be his disciples. And this passage is crucial for us to understand this. Early in our marriage, my wife and I, we visited many, many different churches uh, in Brisbane and in South Australia. We really wanted to see this broad picture of what the Church of Jesus Christ looked like in this country. Because... We'd both been kind of largely brought up in, in our own family churches. And we had always experienced the same kind of ministry. And so we were hungry and we were thirsty to see what God was doing out there beyond the gathered community that we had always known. And we visited this one particular church, very large church in South Australia, that actually met in a um, defunct cinema. That's right. So the, the projection was actually on the cinema screen. Can you believe it? Um, and of course, the, the theater had a huge capacity and they had commercial kitchens and all this other stuff. And, and obviously the church was paying a bucket load of money to use the facility, but it was great. You know, it was, and it was an inner city location and, and the, the ministry team would often tell us how they, they would arrive in the morning and they would um, offer the homeless people who were sleeping their food and, and, and giving them something to eat and then inviting them to come to the service. Although I, I don't think we ever really saw them, did we, honey? <laughs> what we saw in the church was everybody was really well dressed and clean and lovely. And, and the pastoral team was there and they all looked really nice. And, and what we experienced of that church was commitment. We saw a lot of people who were really committed to the vision of that particular church. And they were so committed that at one point, one of the youth pastors had this idea to build a skating rink in one of the uh, defunct theatres in the lower part of the building. And so they did. <laughs> they did. They actually cleared out all the stuff, all the chairs and all the seating, and they built a skating rink, so that, um, uh, a skate park, sorry, so that the kids who were in the inner city, normally getting up to all sorts of nasty stuff, could come with their skateboards and rollerblades and have somewhere to go. And all over the walls were Bible verses painted in graffiti, you know, in that style that only young people can read. <laughs> so, so that they felt that it was for them. Um, and the one thing I didn't agree with was that in, in that room, when you entered in to the left, were all the games consoles. So the kids could play video games. And, and so during the service, you'd often see as the sermon started, this mass of kids just leaving and going downstairs. Because obviously the sermon from Sonic the Hedgehog was more interesting than that of the pastor. But anyway, I digress. One day... The ministry team leadership made an announcement 
that they were appointing a new pastor. And this was a huge deal in this community. And, and who was this new pastor? Oh, it was the nephew of one of the lead pastors. That was not received particularly well. As you can imagine, people there were responding strongly because they were saying, you know, this person has only been given that role and that title because they're related to the ministry family. And there was a lot of despondency and people feeling betrayed. People who had been working hard for years to support this community. The fellow who had helped put together the skating ramps. The ones who had been feeding the homeless. The ones who had been greeting people at the door. Why were they not next up to go up and be part of that ministry team? Why this person from another city who had never really been part of this space, who had never put in the work and the hours, why were they given this position of prestige? It was a hard moment in that life of that community. Now, in my tradition, the ministry team, they discern from God. And they look to see who is God raising up for these particular roles and these particular circumstances. And in my current role as the one who oversees the period of discernment for our region, I have encountered so many people who perhaps might say to you, I am not worthy to take the pulpit. To which I would say, great, then you're ready. Because you see, it's from that place of acknowledgement. It's from that reality that maybe I am not the one who is chosen to be here, but God who has chosen that I be here. That we find ourselves where we need to be. And that's what today's reading is actually all about. Because you see, there was a whole race of people, a whole nation, who had been dedicated to following God and to listening to His will. But when Christ came, did they appoint him to the highest role? No. Did they elevate him to be their king, their leader? No. Did they even listen to him? Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth and they wanted to kill him. So is it any wonder that he preaches this passage so that they know and understand God does not have grandkids? We, each of us, must come before the Lord as His children, fresh anew, ready to receive our own pardon and not look around at others and what they've earned, but instead recognize that we do not covet God's generosity, for we already have it. Are you with me, church? So with that said, I invite you to bow your heads with me and we're going to dive into this. And I pray that we'll go home with a greater understanding of how special and precious we truly are in the eyes of our Lord. Father God, help us open our eyes and our ears to know and understand your love. Because Lord, your love is unfathomable. And it is beyond understanding. And yet we can experience it, though we may not know it. Help us in this moment come to a little bit of a greater understanding of this. I pray in Jesus' name. And the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Jesus begins, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. 
When you hear that, what do you think? What time, what time in the morning did he go? 6 a.m., 5 a.m., dawn? No. The word is pre. Pre. And it means the last watch at 3 a.m. He went out at 3 a.m. God goes out early to find workers. He goes out in the darkness to find those who are ready to heed his call. In the darkness, before there was light, Genesis tells us, God began the work for us. This is part of what Jesus is trying to get us to comprehend and understand. He didn't go out in the first sun. He didn't go out after breakfast. He didn't go out when he was expected or thought of appropriate for the workers. He went out at the very earliest that he possibly could when it was still dark to get those who were ready to do that work. Commitment. Commitment from God means that he is committed to us despite where he finds us. Whether he finds us in our victories or in our defeats, in our highs or in our lows, in the light or in the darkness. This is God's commitment to you and to me. And this is part of why Jesus is teaching this. Because Israel was in darkness. They had come back from exile from Babylon. They had had four generations. And what did they bring back with them? Oh, well, we suddenly realized we don't need to go to the temple anymore. So they turned the temple into religion. They turned the temple into ritual. You have to do these things in order to be holy. And that which was meant to be the house of the Lord became a house of thieves and a den of robbers. This is what Jesus experienced. And he looks at Jerusalem, the holy city. He looks at the very hill, Zion, where David, the king, once asked God, come and live in my house. Let my palace be your dwelling place. And he wept. For it had been so corrupted. So downtrodden, so distant and far away from that which God had envisioned, that it no longer pleased the Lord. And so he tells this parable because God had gone out early, early to bring his people in. But now, at this twilight moment in the ministry of Christ, His people were rejecting. We see that he goes out three more, four more times. He goes out Tritenoran, the third hour, around about 9 a.m. He goes out Hekten Kai Ekantenoran, the sixth and the ninth hours. And he goes out Hendenkatenoran, the eleventh hour. Now you might be wondering, why am I putting this up there? Because I want you to know something. These concepts are foreign to us. 
These times are important in the Jewish hierarchy of the day. The ninth hour, sorry, the third hour, 9 a.m., by that stage, a lot of the work was already done. Did you know that? Can you imagine your workday finishing around about 10 o'clock in the morning? High school kids? How does that sound? (laughs) And why is that? Because it gets to around 40 degrees in Israel. When my wife and I came, shall I say migrated from South Australia to Queensland? (laughs) The distance is about that. (laughs) What we found was really fascinating that on average, church services in South Australia started at around about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And here, they started at 8, 30, 9 a.m. And it was quite a stark contrast for us because in South Australia, we had been accustomed to that 10, 30, 11 o'clock wake-up time. And as we discussed it further, we realized, of course, it's hotter here. It gets warmer earlier. And so people want to be done. And especially think about back in the day when these were all cane fields, what it would have been like. You know, this is a, a church nearly 150 years old. And so you can imagine what it would have been like when this was all cane fields. They would have come to worship and then they would have had to have gone out and actually worked the cane fields. And they probably wouldn't have wanted to do that in the heat of the day. So this tradition builds up. Commentators tell us that anybody who would have come looking for work in the third hour of the day would have expected to only work for a few hours. Would have expected that the labor would have been brief. But is the work in the kingdom of heaven short? No. Is it brief? No. Jesus tells us that the harvest is ready, but the workers are few. And there is work that needs to be done, needs to be carried on, needs to be made. The uh, landowner goes out again in the sixth and the ninth hours. Again, these are significant points in the day because they mark particular breaks, particular meal times, but also prayer times. Prayer times. And he goes out in these ones, and again, he looks at laborers, workers, to come and join the work that needs to take place. And then finally, he goes out in the 11th hour at 5 p.m. Now, this is really, really crucial because what is it that the Jewish people did at that time? They lit the menorah, they lit the candle for prayer. You see, it's indicative of the fact that in this last time, in this last moment, when the sun is fading, even then there is work that needs to be done. And that work is worthy and meritorious. And so what do we find? What do we learn? For the first work, they received one denarius for the whole day. By the way, that's a picture of the denarius that they would have had back then with the the face of... um, of Tertullian. It's the same one that we believe Jesus took out of the mouth of the fish and said, give unto Caesar what he Caesar's. For the second workers, one denarius from 9 a.m. For the third workers, one denarius from 3 p.m. For the fourth workers, 
webinars from 5 p.m. Is this fair? No. Does it matter? No. Because it is God's money. It is God's generosity. It is God's will to give this. And it is for us to comprehend and understand it. You see, he had just been in this situation where the disciples were arguing amongst themselves. Which of us is going to be the greatest? And so he goes and he tells them, you need to be like this child. But not just that, he went up onto the Mount of Olives. And by the way, for those of you who are asleep, you might recognize, I'm just going to go back to the previous one because it's a bit easier to see. Thank you. That's the Mount of Olives. That's the view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, by the way. And he was up there that he told them this sermon. He preached this sermon. Thank you, Betty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There where he says poor in spirit, he's literally using the the term for a beggar. Blessed are those who, like beggars, crouch down in the spirit, who are humble, who are lowly. You see, he's painting this picture of how all of the elitism and prestige of society goes against the grain of what the kingdom of heaven is meant to be about. And that instead righteousness is not about following the edicts and the mandates of the law, but instead about living a life that is honoring and honorable before God. Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. He quotes Abraham, the ancestor of the Jews. He says, Abraham believed in God and he was credited to him as righteousness. So then he says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So friends, we can think about those four instances that the the landowner came out. The first one was to the children of Israel. They were first given the opportunity to follow God. And he even pulled them out of slavery and said, you will be my people and I will take you to the promised land. And what did they do? They grumbled and they complained. And a generation had to die before they could receive their gift. The second one is like the judges, the people who were there in the promised land. But they looked around and they saw other gods and other peoples and they were tempted and drawn and they were attracted to that. But God still loved them. God still worked through them. Then the third is the kingdom, the kingdom of David, where the temple gets established. The presence of God is literally in concrete in their city. And it becomes the epicenter, the pulsating beat and heart of holiness for all the world to see. God's vision for Israel at this time was that it would be a center where everyone in the world would come to experience God's greatness and his love. But is that what happened? No, they were selfish with it. They hoarded it and eventually they walked away from the Lord, drawn and attracted by other gods. 
Then they go out into exile. And in exile they say, Lord, we don't have the temple. How do we worship? What do we do? God gives them the Bible. Now every person, every Jewish person has the scriptures and they are learning it and they're reading it. And Daniel is quoting scripture. You don't see people quoting scripture beforehand. Daniel is quoting scripture. And who is he quoting it to? The king, the Babylonian king, the Gentiles. He is there testifying of a God that can save, though he himself is captive. And then there's us, the Gentiles. We know that Christ gave his life for us. We know that Christ walked willingly to Calvary. We know that we don't deserve the salvation. We are so freely and beautifully given. Yet we have this. We're the last workers, friends. We came at the end of the day, and yet that denarius, that's ours. Not with the face of a king or an emperor far, far away, but the promise of a God who loves us and holds us dear to his heart, who cares for us intimately, individually. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is preaching to a recalcitrant church. A church that when things were good, they were great and praised Jesus. When things were bad, oh, forget this. I'm going to go back to the temple of Apollo and Zeus. And, and he's trying to explain to them and say to them, friends, this is not easy to comprehend. But what we need to know and understand is that God has loved us and from that love against wisdom, against the law, against the system that is in place that says sin knocks us down and God's love brings us up. Christ came to make God's love accessible to those of us who are sinners. So he says to them in the first chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Friends, we may find ourselves laboring for what we might consider to be the whole day and not seeing the fruit or the return for our work. But we know that we have a God there who is ready with that promise to bless us. The stumbling block to the Jews was this idea that they had somehow inherited salvation by virtue of their blood, by virtue of their accessibility to the law of God. No one has that. God doesn't have grandchildren. To the Gentiles, it seemed foolishness that you don't have to commit a sacrifice because the sacrifice had already been made. And to people today, perhaps losing a Sunday morning once a week may seem like foolishness too. But for this worker in the vineyard, that is a worthy 
sacrifice. Because it means that I get to see those who are coming late and understand the blessing that God has in store for them as well. It's the same blessing as I have. And it's the same blessing that I am working for. I commend that to you, friends. Genuinely, I do. Continue to work for that blessing. Not because we can earn it, but because we know that we work alongside others who also deserve it. And in this, we honor the path of righteousness of the landowner whom we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are awesome. And your love incomprehensible and unfathomable. And yet you give it to us freely, willingly, through Christ our Lord. We thank you for that amazing grace. A grace that amazes. A grace that compels. A grace that calls, empowers and equips. Lord, let us not look around us and be envious of those who have been blessed who have not labored as long as we have, but instead let us worship. Let, us voice, let our voices rise up with those of angels who praise your name for everyone who comes and responds to your call. Yes, the call of salvation, absolutely. But also the call to join the laborers on the field. Whether they come early whether they come in the darkness of their day or whether they come in the light of the day when there is seemingly little to do. Let our work count and let us labor cheerfully together. And so we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.